What comes to your mind when you see this word? Can you give me a synonym for radical? Say again. All out. Uncommon. Crazy. What? Extreme. I found that in the dictionary. That's good, Dottie. What? Pushy. Okay. How about um, how about thorough? How about extreme? How about militant? How about uh, um, somebody said crazy? How about a, a revolutionary, uncompromising? So here's what I want to ask you today. What are you radical about? Oh, I'm not radical about anything. Oh, yeah. Everybody's radical about something. It's a matter of finding out what it is. Some of us are radical about our, about our families. Some of us are radical about money, about making money, about keeping money. It's all about money. Some are radical about jobs, vocations. Somebody, some are radical about avocations. It seems today some people are even radical about just staying busy. Y'all know what I'm talking about? We're radical about a number, of, a number of things. The list could go on. We're radical about hobbies. We're radical about sports. Oh, I can camp there for a second. Because I'm still not accustomed to this, and I'm sorry I'm a slow, I'm a slow learner. When I moved to Alabama, one of the things that I saw was flags on trucks. Decals on cars. All about sports. Now, is that wrong? No, don't leave here and say that Brother Jerry said that's wrong. I'm just saying that to do that takes you to another level of extreme. And, and, and ra- even some people put on their vehicles the number of their favorite race car driver. And you go, well, that's not really radical, Brother Jerry. That's just being a fan. Okay. Okay, let's take, that, let's take your argument that that's just being a fan. So here's my question today. How come that doesn't take, how come that doesn't span the guff of everything in life? For you see, we put the flags on our car, the decals on our cars, and the numbers on our cars, and, and we wear clothing <clears throat> of, our favorite, of our favorite sports team, our favorite this, that, or the other. What do we think when we before put a flag on our car that said Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever? Jesus Christ, I'm his. There's a sign on the side that says, in fact, you know, you can see people with signs on the side of their car, and what do you think? And here's what you, here's, here's what the comeback. They're not a fan, they're a fanatic. How come there's a different level, a different, a different perception when we get sold out for Jesus? You know what? To do the same things for Jesus that we do things we're really fanatic, things that we're really radical about, People want to term us fanatics. And I dare say that the very reason that the church, please listen, the reason the church is losing influence in America, the reason believers are losing influence in America is because we buy into this American culture way of thinking that we can be sold out. Why is it that SEC football is the number one thing in, in the country now and the church is going down? It's because people are putting putting decals and logos on the side of their car and they're speaking about their team and we don't speak about the Lord very much. I've wondered about why this happens I, until recently. 
Recently, I picked up a book, and it's titled Radical, written by Dr. David Platt. Now, we're going to let that sit there just for a second. Written by Dr. David Platt. And I bought this book almost a year ago, and I scanned it. You don't know the truth? Ty, I didn't really like it when I scanned it. And then as things began to unfold in my life and I, and I heard people talk about it, I picked the book back up and I didn't scan it. Now I'm about three-quarters of the way through it. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I rediscovered some principles in this book, biblical principles, sound principles in this book, which has cut to my heart. And I believe over the next couple of weeks as we share some of them from the Bible, I, I believe that it will, that things that we have rationalized, things that we have ignored and even things that we dismiss may become prevalent to us again. Because here's the one truth. When you read this book, there's some tough stuff. There is some tough stuff in this book. And what you'll discover is what the church in America in the 21st century likes. A lot of times Jesus doesn't like it. And the things that the church in the 21st century thinks are important, Jesus doesn't really think is that important. And so in order for us to kind of run through this, let's take a hard look in God's Word. Now, we're going to turn first to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And I'm going to, the Scripture's going to be so many Today, I'm not going to ask you to stand. I hope you don't lose respect for God's Word. I hope you always have respect for God's Word. In the Old Testament, when they read God's Word, they stood, and they stood from morning till night. Now, here's the setup for Matthew 27. Pilate is standing in front of Jesus on trial. Oh, do you think I got that backwards? You think Jesus is standing in front of Pilate. But the truth is, Pilate was standing in front of Jesus. So it's true, Jesus was in human shackles. But Pilate was in eternal shackles. He was in the shackle of the culture versus the Christ. Who would he follow? He had already been warned not to have anything to do with the destruction of this man. And he already had fabricated a plan that he was going to offer them Barabbas. And they said, crucify him. So let's read this verse. He says, Pilate asked them, what should I then do, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they all answered, crucify him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is my prayer today that as we come face to face with your truths, that your truth will penetrate our heart and soften our heart to the place that we respond to you. I pray for that person who's never encountered you in a personal way. I pray that you will speak words into their heart, words of conviction. And then words that will bring them to the knowledge of you. Help us become your people. In your name. Amen. I keep that question in front of you today. What a startling question. 
What should I do then with Jesus? The question is still apropos today. In fact, I suggest to you that it's been echoing, it's been screaming down time till it reaches the pew where you sit, to the place where we are. The truth is, the crowd is still yelling, crucify him. The pilots of this age are still standing by and letting the crowd have their way and not standing for right. What then shall I do with Jesus? Preachers and teachers and theologians and religious people have denigrated Pilate for his lack of courage in the face of the innocence of Jesus. And yet today, I submit, I suggest that we are still listening to the crowd. That we're not following the Christ. And so today I ask you the question, as you see on the back of your bulletin, the crowd or the Christ, which will it be? The crowd or the Christ, which will it be? Now, if we're going to, if we're going to properly understand the burden that's on your pastor's heart this morning, this message is going to center around two questions. And you're going to think they're simple, but hang on before you start answering, because the answer to the second one will be the answer to the first one. The first question is, will I believe Jesus? Will I believe Jesus? And in this crowd, everybody's going, well, yeah, Brother Jerry, I believe Jesus. I believe Jesus. That's fine. That's fine. Well, then the second question will tell the tale. Will I obey Jesus? May I just say this? I've said it a hundred times in six years. We do what we believe. The rest is just a bunch of religious talk. Do will I believe Jesus? Will I obey Jesus? And we're going to come back to that at the end of the message. Am I going to follow the crowd or am I going to follow the Christ? I want to give to you three startling statements and just kind of bounce off of them because Jesus tells us one thing and the crowd tells us something else. First of all, what the crowd declares, what the crowd declares to be normal, Jesus, excuse me, what the crowd declares to be optional, Jesus declares to be essential. What the crowd, what the world says is optional, Jesus says is essential. Now, there's a lot difference in options and essentials. I love the TV commercial where the guy goes and buys the car and it doesn't have a door on it because he didn't have enough money. You understand what I'm saying? And yet... And yet, there, there was a time, some of us remember it, the younger folks don't remember it because you can't imagine a car without an air conditioner. But I remember going, and they go, well, do you want an air conditioner in it? And I go, well, I would like one. Well, it's going to cost so much. And I said, well, no, I think I'm going to get me a used car because it's going to jack the price to. There are some things that are essential. There are some things that are optional. I'm going to suggest three words, three concepts, three thoughts to you. I'll submit them to you. The first thing that we have that we have to follow Jesus about is that we have to be saved. You're going, oh, duh, Brother Jerry. Everybody knows you have to be saved. Well, listen, the world tells us something different, i.e., Oprah Winfrey says there's got to be more than one way. There's not just one way, and her millions upon millions of fans are hearing that. 
The culture tells us that you can do it on your own. You can find your own way. You can, you can get to God like you want. Just follow your American dream. It'll lead you there. There is, and that's outside the church. Inside the church, there is a growing universalism creeping into our pews that everybody, somehow, some way, in some fashion, are going to make it to heaven. Please listen to your pastor today, and not because I say it, it's because this book teaches it. You cannot volunteer enough, you cannot teach enough, you cannot give enough money, you cannot offer enough leadership, you cannot preach enough, you cannot deek enough, you cannot attend enough to make yourself right before God. The Bible teaches us we're dead in trespasses and sin. And the truth is, the last time that I saw when something was dead, it took a supernatural event to raise it from the dead. A heart that just sits there and so cold. That's what he's talking about in Ephesians when he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You see, it requires us, it requires us to be saved. Now let me startle you today. As I read this, I got my little Baptist indignation on. And then I began checking it out. And it's right. Because David Platt said in his book, he said, in some sense, he said, in some sense, God hates sinners. And all of my eyebrows went up like yours. God doesn't hate sinners. He hates the sin, but he loves sinners. Oh, is that right? What happened to that? Well, the Bible happened to that. If you got your for the sake of time, why don't you just follow along on the screen? We begin in Leviticus chapter 20. It says, verse 23, you must not follow the statutes of the nations, I am driving out before you, for they did these things, and I abhorred them. The Psalms chapter 5 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot lodge with, with you. The boastful cannot stand in your presence. You hate evil, all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. And the Lord abhors a man of bloodshed and treachery. You still haven't had enough? Go to Proverbs chapter 6. And it says, six things the Lord hates. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among the brothers. You still not had enough? Go to Hosea. Hosea Chapter 9, verse 15, he says, All their evil appeal appears at Gilgal, for I came to hate them, and I will drive them from my house because of their evil, wicked action. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. That's still not enough? You can piggyback that on what Jesus said when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. As he's talking about end times, and he says, I will announce to them, I never knew you depart from me, you lawbreakers. And then when they ask him to teach about the end time over in chapter 25 of Matthew, he says, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into an eternal fire for the devil and his angel. You see, folks, we have come to the conclusion, the crowd has tried to teach us that God loves sinners, so it's no big deal. But here's what I'm going to tell you. He, 
the dichotomy is he hates sinners and he hates the sin. And yet at the same way, he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It tells me there has to be a change. The world will tell you there does not have to be a change. The world will tell you all you got to do is start coming to church. All you got to do is start uh, volunteering. All you got to do is start giving and everything will be okay. And here's what I will tell you. When the world said it'll be okay, Jesus says you must be born again. When the world says, what must I do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. And when the world says, what must I do? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For by grace are you been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, if there's no change in the heart, if the heart lays there dead, you are lost. And here's what I'm going to tell you. You are bound for a place called hell. I've already said there's some bad stuff in this, some tough stuff, but there's some bad stuff in this book. We've forgotten that. Oh, Brother Jerry, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Well, it is the good news, but the only reason it's good news because it points out the bad news of the wicked, hard, cold heart. You see, we have to be saved. There's no other way to know God. You're not going to work your way into His presence. You're not going to work His way into, into a good relationship with Him. You must be saved. In a crowd this size, in the United States of America, there are people in this room who need to be saved. Oh, Brother Jerry, everybody in this room has been a member of this church for 30 years. I stand on the statement in a crowd this size in the United States of America. There are people who need to be saved. There are people who have attended, have led, maybe preached, maybe sang. There are people that when they walk out the door, as we'll talk in just a second, leave it all right here. You see, what the crowd declares to be optional, Jesus says it's essential. It's a change. It's a conversion. The funny part to me is the joy of the Lord is our strength. And the people who say that they're saved and they got such a dead heart, you can see it on their face. There's no joy. There's no peace. There's no surety. There's no camaraderie. There's no fellowship. We must be saved. Now, once we get saved... May I say this before I leave? That if you have never invited Christ in your life, if you closed your eyes in death right now and you had to face God, why would you tell him to let you into heaven? Oh, I, I was Sunday school director. I led worship, played the bass, sang in the choir, preached. Well, that's all well and good. But there's only one thing we can tell him. Jesus came into my life and he saved me and he walked with me every day. He guarded my words, he guarded my attitudes, he guarded my action and it began at Calvary. Oh sinner, be saved. As long as you delay and put it off, Satan will give you an excuse. Second thing that I would suggest to you is, is it, it's essential, it must be sowing. Sowing. Peter tells us that God desires that no one should perish. And then Jesus ends his ministry saying, go and make disciples. So here's the truth. If we're going to make disciples, just as surely as a farmer has to 
sow seed, God's people must sow the Word of God. Now, we had thought about, in fact, Brother Troy and I talked about today, having Bibles down here, courtesy of the Gideon, that we could all commit by taking a, a copy of God's Word and giving it. But you know why we couldn't? It's because the Gideons have given out in the aftermath of the storm. You're talking about a group that gives and gives and gives and gives and gives God's Word? They do it. That's why once a year we have them in and we always seem to do pretty good on our offering for them. But here's what I will tell you. Is that God didn't, Jesus didn't tell the teach, just tell the preacher and the teacher and the evangelist to sow the seed. His words were, as you go, sow. As you go, sow. And I think it's because our Lord understands how he put us together. Please listen. Don't miss it. Every day you go, you do sow some kind of seed. And I suggest to us that we either sow sin of the flesh, sin in our selfishness, our unforgiveness, our sorry attitude, our works of the darkness, or we sow the seed of the Spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, kindness. You see, if we meet Christ's essential demand of sowing the Word, we must be intentional about the type of seed that we are sowing. I walked into your workplace and shared Christ with somebody you work with, would they be surprised that you remember this congregation? Or would they say, well, you know, he, he or she, they've been, they've been trying to tell me about Christ. They've been living it before me. The reason this is so important is because our Lord speaks to this very issue. When he tells us that what we sow is important. In Galatians 6, he says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap corruption from his flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. What are you sowing today? What seed are you putting out there? How is it germinating? It seems like every week, either from the little article that I put in the paper or something that somebody hears on the Internet, I'm either getting an email or just a personal contact with someone who says, you know, you said this and so, can, can you kind of elaborate? Can you kind of help me with this? You see, folks, the seed that we put out there is going to come back to us. And you know the three laws of sowing and reaping because I've given them to you. You're going to reap exactly what you sow. You're going to reap more than you sow. 
And you're going to reap later than you sow. I heard a preacher say one time, the problem is that we're sowing our wild oats and praying for crop failure. Jesus says it's essential for us to sow. And by the way, before I pass this, we have a huge opportunity now to sow in, in the aftermath of the storm. This week, we had a team of men out two or three days doing a bunch of things. Two weeks ago yesterday, we fed some workers, but it's not over. We'll be connecting with um, um, Bethel Church in uh, Pleasant Grove, Brother Rick Cato. And now when a lot of the initial volunteers begin to go home, I'm going to call on you and ask you to step to the plate. Because now's the time when we can give a cup of water in the name of the Lord. And when they say, why are you doing this? You know, we don't just say, oh, it's because I love you. We say it's because of the love Jesus has for me and through me. He, I'm loving you with his hand of service. Tuesday night, the deacons and I will meet. And when the deacons and I, one of the things we talked about last meeting is that we're going to talk this time how we can be, get back in ministry, not inside the church, not, not for ourselves, but how we can get out there in ministry. You see, folks, it's not an option. It's a requirement for a believer. The third word I'd give to you is the word service. Word service. The crowd tries today, today tries to tell us that <clears throat> since salvation is a gift, since salvation is free, I don't have to do anything. Well, first of all, there is no such thing as anything being free. For your salvation, someone at some time and some place bought your freedom. And that happened to be Jesus on the cross of Christ, on the cross of Calvary, on Golgotha's Hill. We don't work to get our salvation. We don't work for our salvation. We work from our salvation, and we work because we have been saved. The DNA of a believer has service written in it. For the person who has been born again, you can't imagine not helping someone. I'm quoting the scripture a while ago. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. Here's the watch translation, so you can't brag about it. You see, the truth is, when Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4, and Satan was trying to get Jesus to worship him, Jesus' word was, worship and serve the Lord. Paul reiterated that with a number of scriptures. Let's just take a look at a couple of scriptures. I believe I have them up here, don't I, Cam? Romans 1, 9, For God whom I serve with my, with my spirit and telling the good news about his son is my witness that I constantly mention you and mention you in prayer. But the God whom I serve, go ahead, if you will, Kim. In Colossians, he writes to the church of Colossae, and he said, knowing that you'll receive a reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. <laughs> and then 1 Thessalonians 1, nine, he said, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had from you, how you, here it is, the testimony, how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. You see, folks, we can go to the words of Jesus and we know that when we serve other people that we are giving the cup of water in Jesus' name. We are reaching out in his name. We are touching them in his name. So I ask you today, who do you serve? 
Now, before you answer that, you might want to put something in perspective. Whomever you serve is your master. And your master, by definition, is someone who can speak and you respond. You are at the beck and call of your master. Is Jesus our master? Or are we our master? The only time that we respond, the only person that we're at, the, that we uh, respond and, and, to the, and like a beck and call sound is ourselves. At the sound of the master's voice, your schedule can change. At the sound of the master's voice, your priorities change. At the sound of the master's voice, your life changes. Who do you serve? There are those among us that decided that we can serve both, God and the world. We can listen to the crowd and the Christ. Jesus speaks directly to that. Nobody can serve two masters. He'll love the one and hate the other. Who do you serve? What the crowd declares to be optional, Jesus declares to be essential. Those are just three parts. second thing that I'd say to you is what the crowd declares to be normal, Jesus declares to be unacceptable. Did you hear that? What the crowd declares to be normal, Jesus declares to be unacceptable. You see, the crowd wants to dumb us down and lower the standard of, of the call of Christ. And Jesus keeps wanting to raise the standard. I think this is particularly apropos. Wednesday night, I mentioned the name Vance Havner. I think Brother Terry knew him. Vance Havner had a way of a, a spinning a phrase. And what I will suggest to you today is that the church today is not like the church of the first century. It's not like the church of the first century. And this is what Vance Havner said about it. He said, the church is so subnormal that if it ever gets back to New Testament normal, it would seem to people to be abnormal. You see, we have looked at ourselves and we, and we have decided that everybody else is doing it. Hello? I'm going to suggest three things to you here. Three areas, and one builds on the other, of the reasons. And I'll give you some scripture. The first, the first reason, the first thing that happens to us as individuals that puts us down this road is a long, big word called compartmentalization. Now, I wanted to, and I tried to get you a little clip today. Mark Gungor is a pastor up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and he speaks on men and women and marriage. And he has on, when he's doing this conference, he has the bust of a man's head over here, scalp off, just a bust, and the brain there. And over here he has... The woman's brain, scalp off, seeing the brain. Now, for the woman's brain, he, he says it's all interconnected. It's like the Internet highway. Everything's connected to everything else. That's how come they're right brain, left brain. But for the man, it's all about compartments. He says each of those compartments contain everything a man, or one compartment uh, contains everything a man knows about a particular subject. And when a man's going to talk about that subject, he takes that one compartment out, he opens it, he discusses it, and when he's done with it, he puts it back together, and he puts it back, closes it back, and he puts it back in place, very careful, 
not to touch anything else. Women, you know what I'm talking about. He even says that in that brain there is a box that has nothing in it. And that is the default box. The man can go to nothing when he can't do anything else. But here's the point. They don't touch each other. Do you know that's what happens, what is happening today in Christianity? Do you know that's exactly what's happening? We separate our lives out. We have our religious life, our church life. We have our sports life. We have our family life. We have our, and we have them all in compartments, and one never touches the other, particularly this box that holds our church in it. I was talking to somebody today. Uh, not today. I was talking to somebody on Friday. And we're talking through this message, and I was telling them about this thing of compartmentalization where we compartmentalize, which means that nothing we do on Sunday or Wednesday ever works, works its way into our workplace. It never works its way into our daily lives. It never works its way into our relationships. And you know what the, you know what the person said to me? He said, it's not only outside the four walls of the church. He said, I want you to think about it. He said, inside the four walls, he said... Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. He said, we don't do that in the church. He said, the Bible says encourage one another. We don't do that in the church. The Bible says build up one another. We don't do that in the church. The Bible says pray for one another. We don't do that in the church. We just kind of compartmentalize. And here's what I'm going to tell you. That's unacceptable to Christ. That is unacceptable to him. To compartmentalize your life. For me, the biggest illustration that I know is, have you ever talked to someone and the conversation is going seemingly good and, and everything's seemingly human, and then you mention something about the Lord, and all of a sudden, their tone changes, and their body language changes. And I remember this about one particular person that said, well, now, if you're talking about the Bible. And I thought, what, did you catch something all of a sudden? You see, when we come to Christ, it should be as natural as talking to our neighbor on the phone. It should be a part of everything we are and everything we do. For too many, it's my Sunday ritual, and then I'll be back next week for another dose. I really don't want to be a fanatic. And we just kind of compartmentalize it out. And when we compartmentalize it out, here's what happens. The second thing that I see the church is being told is normal. Jesus says unacceptable, and that's complacency. By the way, he's probably already got that up there. By the way, if you look in Matthew, you don't, we're not going to turn there, but in Matthew 23, 25, what you'll discover is that the Pharisees, when Jesus was pronouncing woes on them, he talked about them being washed tombs. They whitewashed themselves on the outside and on the inside. They're filthy evil. Because they compartmentalize their stuff. The second thing is complacency. Complacency. You know, after fencing yourself in with being compartmentalized, gosh, we could camp here for a long time and I know time is gone. You know one of the things about having a compartmentalized life? I am close to being claustrophobic. I'll just tell you my, my fear. When you're compartmentalized, it's almost like being in prison. And that bleeds to complacency. You get fenced in, and then you become complacent because you simply don't care. You don't care if people die and go to hell. You don't care if there are needs. 
All you care about is yourself and how things impact you. One pastor asked a, a man, said, uh, do you think the problem in our church is ignorance and apathy? And the man said, I don't know and I don't care. You see, the don't care attitude pervades the church in America today. When you think about the people who are around this world that haven't had the opportunity to know Christ, they've not ever heard the story, they, the, the thousands of kids. You know, in the, time, in the time that we visit here today and call it worship, thousands of kids, my recollection is 12,000 kids will die of malnutrition while we're here during this hour. And many of those never having the opportunity to know Christ. David tells a story about being in a church in America. Probably when he was in seminary in New Orleans. And he was getting involved and going down to the French Quarter. And he was... And then he was getting in some other areas. And he was just so pumped up that some, some of these folks were coming to Christ... And he was in an American church sitting among a, a large group, and he said, here's what's happening. We're seeing these folks saved, and these folks saved, these folks saved. When a man spoke up and said, you know, Dave, all that's will and good. You know, I'm, kind of, I'm glad. I'm glad you're going to those places and experiencing some success. But I would just assume, I want to read this. I, was, I would just assume God annihilate all those people and send them to hell. Can you imagine speaking those words? Can you imagine having a heart like that? A heart so cold. Yet complacency permeates the American church because it's all about us. And when you have a life that's compartmentalized and it bleeds to complacency, you will lead to carnality, number three. Carnality. To be carnal is to be of the world. Jesus tells us what carnality is all about in many ways, but Paul piggybacks it, probably the best treatise on carnality is in 1 Corinthians 3. And he said, Brother, I don't want you to be, I, I, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, that is, carnal people. As babies in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, because you were not able to receive it. In fact, you are still not able because you are still carnal. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not carnal and living like ordinary people? The crowd tells us, the crowd tells us that we can work it out. We can figure it out. We can talk it out. And in the church, we can rationalize it. The crowd tells us to lean on our own understanding. Through his word, our Lord says, lean, on, lean not on our own understanding. But the crowd declares to be normal. Jesus declares to be unacceptable. And the third statement is what the crowd declares to be radical. 
fanatical. Jesus declares to be normal. Now I'm going to warn you that we want, I want you to turn now to Luke chapter 9. won't be on the screen, I don't think. Luke chapter 9. Because the text I'm going to read and end with in the next few moments is the text that we're going to preach from tonight as we talk about following Christ. Talk about some of the difficult messages and difficult uh, principles and, and lifestyle calls Jesus gave us. Here it is, Luke 9, verse 57 and following. The scripture records, as they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the dead bury the dead. But you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said to him, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, it is true. It is true that radical is a relative concept, very subjective. What some deem as radical, others deem normal. But here's what I will tell you. You make no mistakes. And for you and me, Jesus raises the stakes. And I'll suggest three things here. And tonight's message will be entirely different from the same text. First thing, Jesus calls us to be sold out. He encountered three men here. And two of them came to him and one he called out. And I want you to notice, Jesus never lowered his standard. People today, the crowd today says, you give Jesus whatever he wants, it'll be fine. Jesus says it's all or nothing. Either I am Lord of all or I'm not Lord at all. What's the crowd telling you today? Can the crowd see that you're sold out to him or sold out to them? He calls us to be sold out. He also calls us, calls us to reach out. To reach out. One of the great lies propagated on the church today is this statement. Please listen, you've heard it. We are not commanded to be fruitful. We are just commanded to be faithful. Boy, that feels good, doesn't it? Kind of takes the pressure off. Well, wait a minute, Brother Jerry, is there a problem with that? Well, Jesus says there is. John 15, maybe up there. John 15 says... I am the true vine, and my Father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that does produce fruit, so it will produce more fruit. You move down to verse 5. 
As Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I am him produces much fruit. That kind of kicks out the way that we're not commanded to be fruitful. We're just commanded to be faithful because you can do nothing without me. And then you move further down. He says, my father's glorified in this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And then further down, it says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit. You see, not only do we come sold out, but we're called to reach out. And Jesus counters our modern day excuse with a word of truth that says, if you won't sell out, you probably need to get out because I called you to produce fruit. Hard words, Brother Jerry. Bible words. But in this Matthew 9, excuse me, the Luke 9 passage, He not only calls us to sell out and reach out, but He calls us, number three, to carry out. When Jesus returned to heaven, He gave us our marching orders. Ask most church members. If I were to pass out a slip of paper to everybody in this room, and I were to ask you what you want, what you expect, and what you look for in a church, I'm sad to say that reaching lost people and discipling them would barely come to the top. Oh, we want good music. We want good preaching. We want good small groups. And why? Why? Is anything wrong with those things? Only, only as they rise above the clarion call of Christ to reach and touch lost people. Now, That's the word. You may not like the word. You really may not like who shared the word. But it's still his word. And the two questions remain. Will I believe Jesus? Will I obey Jesus? And if the answer is in the negative to the first one, by default, It is in the negative to the positive, to the first one. If you won't obey him, you don't believe him. Some of us need to obey him today because we need to come to him and be saved. Some of us need to to obey him today as we need to return. We've fallen away. Our hearts have grown cold, hard. And God's spoken to you. Let's pray together.